Hi everyone, I'm Madden. And I'm Zoe. And this is the Unnamed Doe podcast. I have a bit of an unusual episode for you today. Instead of covering the case of one doe, we'll be covering the cases of two. When police were called to the scene of a double homicide, no one could have fathomed that the identities of the victims would still be unknown almost 35 years later. This is the story of the vacant lot homicides. Before we start, I want to pause and give you all a brief content warning. This episode was very difficult for us to record due to the nature of the cases discussed, and it contains very heavy subjects, specifically about children in the foster care system. Please be sure to take care while listening, and if this episode isn't for you, we will be back with another episode next week. On Thursday, October 6, 1988, a man stumbled upon a gruesome scene. At exactly 2.04 p.m. as he walked across from 29 Eldon Street near a vacant lot in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, he discovered the body of a teenage boy. The man, who has never been named, contacted the police. When police arrived on the scene, they made a startling discovery. There was another body. Nearby, hidden under a tarp, was the body of another teenage boy. According to the Doe Network, both boys were black males in their mid to late teens. That's an awful thing to discover. Thinking you're going to find one homicide is awful, but stumbling upon two, that's even worse. Is there anything else we know about these boys? At this point in the investigation, police didn't know much about the victims beyond what they could glean from their remains and the items left at the scene like clothing. One of the boys, who was the younger of the two, was estimated to be 14 to 16 years old, 5 foot 4 inches tall, 128 to 132 pounds, with short cropped black hair and brown eyes. The other boy, who was a little bit older, was estimated to be 15 to 20 years old, 5 foot 10 inches tall, 160 pounds, with black hair that was curly and about a half inch long, and brown eyes. I'm not sure where this next piece of information came from, but it's in every source you can find about this case. It's also thought that the boys could have had Jamaican ancestry. Okay, is there anything else that we know? It seems like we have a really good description of them. Were there any IDs or distinctive clothing, anything like that? We actually do have the clothes that were found at the scene. They weren't necessarily distinctive clothes, but something was interesting about the clothes that we'll get to. The boys were wearing the clothes that they had been in when they were murdered. The first boy that I described was wearing a gray sweater, a gray and black sweater, a blue shirt, a pair of jeans, a pair of red gym shorts, red jockey underwear, and blue avia sneakers. That's a lot of clothes. Did you say it was the winter months or anything like that? Yes. But that's still a lot of clothes. Two sweaters, a shirt, jeans, and gym shorts? What's going on here? I really don't know, but it does seem like he was wearing all of those clothes. They weren't found off his body or near him. Both NamUs and the Don't Network have all of these clothes listed as found on the body. I can't really explain why he was wearing so many clothes, except that, like you mentioned, it was October in Massachusetts, so I would imagine it was cold, so maybe it was just layers to stay warm. That's still a lot of clothes for October. But they also weren't found with really jackets, so if they didn't have a winter jacket, maybe they needed the extra layers? Yeah, that's true. I don't know, it's just a lot of clothes. I agree. The second boy I described, the older of the two, was wearing a long sleeve black knit shirt or sweatshirt, sources can't decide, black Joy Vince pants with a thin gray pinstripe, a green army belt, red, white, and olive briefs, a pair of blue socks, and white and blue Nike sneakers. Okay, the first thing I have to say is this is not nearly as many clothes as the other boy was wearing. 
no, it's really not, which then kind of throws my maybe because it was cold theory out of the window. I'm not sure. Was anything else found around them or near them? IDs, wallets, anything? The Doe Network lists both boys as having a Reebok bag found near their bodies, but I'm assuming that this is actually just one bag that was found near both bodies. We also know that no forms of ID were left at the scene, which to me feels kind of intentional, like maybe the murderer didn't want these boys to be identified. You would think if there was a bag found near them, they would keep a wallet or something in there. The younger boy especially was 14 to 16, Mm -hmm. so he might not have had an ID. And even if the other boy was 16 to 19, he might not have had an ID either. So neither one of them would have IDs hypothetically. I think the older boy was estimated to be 15 to 20. 15 to 20, sorry. So if he was 15, he definitely might not have had an ID. I don't know. I could be overthinking that. It's very possible they could both have had IDs, but... It is weird that they weren't in the bag. I see where you're coming from that it does seem intentional. In addition to the Reebok bag, police uncovered one more piece of evidence left at the scene. According to the Bronx Times, police found a quote, 16 inch long piece of rolled up foam cushioning, end quote, near the victims that had traces of gunpowder inside of it. Upon further investigation, it was revealed that both boys had been shot execution style with a medium-sized caliber bullet typical of handguns. The foam roll found at the scene had been used as a makeshift silencer during the homicides. I was really confused on where you were going with what was found near them for a second. Why are these boys being shot execution style? I don't understand. These are children. I really don't understand. We'll get into theories later and what could have gone so wrong that these boys were executed in a very premeditated murder, but it's so, so gruesome. These are children. They didn't deserve this. Yeah, and it really doesn't matter what crowd you get involved with. No child has done something bad enough to ever warrant anything like this happening. I mean, no one ever does, but yeah. children... Detective John Cronin of the Boston Police Department Homicide Cold Case Unit provided the same Bronx Times article with an image of the makeshift silencer. It was a roll of white foam with what looks like yellow foam on both ends. We won't be posting a picture of the silencer on our website or on our Instagram because it's a photo straight from the crime scene, so it has blood from the victims on it. So just due to the graphic nature of the image, we won't be posting it. But if you do want to see it, you can find it on the article from the Bronx Times that I've been referencing, which will be linked with our other sources on the website. Okay, is there anything else that we know about this? Or anything else about these boys? So, at this point in the investigation, police had basically hit a dead end. They weren't any closer to identifying the victims than they had been when they found the crime scene. And they couldn't even begin to look for suspects until they figured out who the victims were. They were just kind of stuck. So there were no missing persons reports? There were no parents calling and asking about these kids? Nothing? No. We're gonna get into potential matches in a minute, but the answer to your question is no. Police had basically run out of leads. That is, until a completely unrelated arrest gave them more information than they'd had for the entire course of the investigation. We don't have many details about this arrest, but here is what we do know. As reported in the Brooklyn paper, about a year after the homicides, a woman was arrested for crack possession. After she was arrested, she told police that she knew the victims of the double homicide. Okay, so she knew them. Did she give their names? She actually did. Here is the story that the woman told police. She had met three African-American teenagers at the same vacant lot where the bodies had been discovered. The three teenagers were from the Bronx and went by the names Clayton, Hooker, and Flip. 
According to the witness, Clayton and Hooker, the two victims, had been employed by Flip in a drug trading operation. Specifically, Clayton and Hooker worked for Flip to trade crack cocaine. Okay, do we know which boy was the younger one and which was the older one? The boy that may have gone by Clayton was the younger victim, the one police thought was probably 14 to 16, and the boy that may have gone by Hooker was the older victim, who police thought was 15 to 20. The woman then went on to tell police that Flip was probably 17 to 19 years old, 5'7 to 5'8, and had a medium build. Allegedly, Flip's two front teeth were actually gold and had designs on them, and he also wore a lot of gold necklaces. Okay. What were the designs on his teeth? One of his front teeth was a half moon, and the other one was a star. Okay, that seems really recognizable. Have they ever found this guy? Flip has never been located by law enforcement. Okay, is that because they just can't find him? Or is that because they don't believe the witness? It seems like it's because they can't find him. Every single source I've seen has reported that the two does may have gone by Clayton and Hooker, so to me it seems like law enforcement actually puts a decent amount of credit into this witness testimony. Apparently, it is widely believed that Flip may have escaped back to New York after the murders, which has obviously made him very difficult to find. So we have an eyewitness testimony that seemed pretty useful, and they seem to believe a lot. We know what the boys looked like. We know their possible names yet they're still unidentified. So what else do we know? Do we know if there's been any testing done to figure out who they are, anything like that? According to the Bronx Times, Clayton has a DNA profile, but Hooker was too badly decomposed to get a usable sample. However, the Doe Network lists DNA for both of them as unknown, so I'm really unsure which the correct information is here. Okay, so was Hooker too badly decomposed? Do we know how long they were there before they were found? I kind of assumed they were found almost immediately. Was I, did I assume wrong? You didn't assume wrong. According to the Doe Network, it was estimated that they had been murdered just a few days before they were discovered. That's weird for a lot of reasons. I have a lot of questions. Number one, I don't understand how they could be deceased for a couple days, but be so badly decomposed in what seems like either cold or mild weather. That's really confusing to me. And to piggyback off of that, how were they not able to get a DNA profile from Hooker with that taken into account? because you would think that they would be able to get a profile if it was just a couple days. And I don't see decomposition being that extreme, but maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing something. You did say this was in the late 80s, right? So DNA was still relatively new. So maybe they just didn't take a sample, but then again, you could test for DNA later with bones. I don't understand what's going on here. I have a lot of thoughts and questions. I agree with everything you said. I don't know why they may have been so badly decomposed after only a few days, especially with the point you mentioned about the colder weather possibly preserving their bodies. I really don't understand because their time of death is listed as just a few days prior. You would also think if they were so badly decomposed that you couldn't even get a sample, the smell would have alerted someone sooner than a few days. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. Something isn't adding up, and I don't know if that's just because information has just been lost over time. I'm sure it's not anything nefarious, but I'm a little confused. I have a lot of questions. I don't know if there's any answers. I also don't have any information about when they did DNA testing. I don't know what year they did it. I don't know if they've done it more than once. Sources are really, really vague here, and they tend to differ a little bit. So I'm really only telling you what I know. And we can only go off of what we know, so. Mm -hmm. And every case is different. Maybe it just was a one-off that it just didn't work out to get DNA. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a fair point too. We're just assuming that DNA always works every time and that's not the case. Yeah. I have a lot of questions still. Mm -hmm. and There's no answers and I don't like it. 
we've talked about testing that's been done, like DNA. Were there any facial reconstructions or forensic art done? Yes and no. Out of the two victims, only Clayton has had a facial reconstruction completed. Just like we saw with the DNA samples, Hooker was unfortunately too badly decomposed for a reconstruction to be done. Okay, but reconstructions are done with skulls. Frequently. I don't know. That's really frustrating to me about this case because I get if you can't do a reconstruction at the scene if his face is too badly decomposed, but you can do a reconstruction based on a skull. So I don't understand what's stopping us. When were these reconstructions done? Are they more modern or are they from back then? The reconstruction was done by Nick Mick in 2015. Okay, Nick Mick does reconstructions with just skulls. So I don't understand what's happening here. I'll say this later too, but the boys are buried right now. So I wonder if maybe they didn't want to exhume them to do a facial reconstruction. Okay. But at the very least, we do have one reconstruction to share with you. So Zoe, I have attached the reconstruction from Nick Mick if you could take a look. He looks so young. That's the younger of the two boys, if you remember. And it's almost, it's photographic level. It's so detailed. This picture looks so realistic. Knowing the circumstances of this case, it's honestly very hard to look at because this looks like a little boy you'd see just on his way to school right now. We're recording this on our first day of school. Not gonna lie, I'm trying not to cry. It just looks very lifelike and he looks very young. He definitely looks like he's like 14 in this picture. He's got very dark eyes. Also, this is just a side note that could just totally be the artistic interpretation but his ears look very small like smaller than i would kind of expect his features overall seem kind of smaller like his nose is a little bigger but they're just they seem like childlike features it's very sad i agree this picture was what caught my attention when i was originally researching cases because if you take a look at this picture the eyes just lock on to you and you are staring into the face of a child And it is so heartbreaking. Yeah, this one's getting to me a lot. Okay, moving past this heartbreaking reconstruction, do we know anything about isotope testing? It seems like they have not done isotope testing, but we do have the working theory that they were from the Bronx originally, so we might not need it in this case. Okay, and just confirming, they were found in Boston, and the Bronx is in New York, so they think they're from New York originally, not from the Boston area where they were found. Yes, so the boys were found in Dorchester, which is a neighborhood of Boston, but it's in the greater Boston area. And then they thought they were from the Bronx originally, which yes, is a part of New York City. Are there any theories about what happened to these boys? Police actually do have a few theories as to what may have happened to the boys. Detective John Cronin, who I mentioned earlier, noted that the area where the two John Does were found was a pretty rough area in the 1980s. It was well known to be an area saturated with drugs and violent crime, divided into different drug dealing territories. Drug dealers protected their territories with fear and with violence. Cronin suggests that perhaps Clayton and Hooker, who may have been working in the drug trade for Flip, could have angered a rival drug group, possibly by infringing on their territory, and then became the victims of violent retaliation. That's heartbreaking. If I'm not mistaken, I know the drug world was really rough back then, and I know it still is now, but every time I hear about a kid being involved in the drug trade, probably just trying to do their best to survive or do what they need for their family, and of course that's speculation, but I feel like that's what we often hear. It's just really heartbreaking. And do you remember how I said that the police hadn't been able to track down Flip because he had likely fled back to New York? Yes. 
It's thought that the reason he went into hiding was because he was actually beaten by a rival drug group around the time of the murders and went to New York to escape them. So he could have potentially been a victim along with Clayton and Hooker. Possibly if he hadn't escaped, if it was the same rival group that murdered the two victims. Okay, wow. I guess earlier I had thought that maybe Flip was responsible. I think that's kind of where my mind was led, but I didn't even think about him being potentially could have been a victim as well. That's exactly where I started out. I thought they were looking for Flip as a suspect. I didn't realize that he was assaulted as well. And that if all three of them had been there, there could have been three homicides that day. Wow. Another theory that was proposed by Detective Cronin was that Clayton, Hooker, and Flip may have been runaway children from foster houses. According to the Bronx Times, quote, a majority of foster homes during the 1980s experienced instances of children running away or dying, which went largely unreported, end quote. You said the word majority of foster homes in the 1980s. The majority? Because I would think that that would be the the minority of things to happen, not the majority. For it to be the majority, that would have to be a pretty high statistic out of all the other outcomes for foster homes. That's, I don't even know what to say to that. I know that the Bronx Times got that information from Detective Cronin, but I'm not sure where Detective Cronin got that information from. So I guess do take it with a grain of salt. But we do know that this was happening in the 80s. If it's happening enough for a detective to make a comment about it, that's still too much. That's still too much of this happening. I agree. As soon as I read that in the Bronx Times, I knew I wanted to do a lot of research into this because I genuinely cannot fathom how foster children going missing was so normalized and unreported in the 1980s. But when I started doing research, I learned that this is not just a problem from the 1980s. Children in foster care are some of the most vulnerable people in our population, and according to a USA Today article published just one year ago in 2022, an estimated 55 foster children go missing every single day. Obviously, you can't see my eyes, but they just got really wide. 55 children a day. I'm gonna pull out my calculator and see how many that is in a year. And I believe that's just in the United States. That's just in the United States? Okay. I believe that's American children. Make sure I'm doing this right. 55 times 365. 20,075 children per year going missing from the foster care system. And even if they're found, because I don't know how many of these children are found, that's still an insane number. Uh, And we don't hear about this. It's truly unbelievable. I had no idea that this was happening until I started researching. Why isn't this in the news every day? I don't know. Even more tragically, for far too many children that go missing from foster care, there will be no real search efforts made for them. Their cases get little to no publicity if they're reported missing at all. Why aren't their cases getting any publicity? Like, are they just not being reported missing? Are their foster parents not reporting them missing? Is nobody realizing? I don't understand what's happening here. Why aren't they being reported missing? Why is there no publicity? They're going missing just like any other kid. I don't understand. One of the reasons that they might not get as much publicity is because In some states, there are laws protecting their privacy, so their pictures can't be published, their names can't be published, and it is basically impossible to get attention for a missing person if you cannot publicize their photo or their name. I didn't even think about that. That makes sense because some of these children were taken from really awful circumstances and might not be able to have their family know where they are, but still, that's awful. This is so awful. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into a few reasons later on too why sometimes they go unreported, but I think a lot of it is just a lack of people caring about these cases. Many missing foster children are labeled as runaways from the jump 
and their cases are never actually treated as missing person cases. How many times do we have to have runaway cases end horribly before people start caring about them and start treating them like missing persons cases? Even if they are runaways, runaways deserve to get looked for and brought home. What does it matter? Exactly! Treat every case like they are possibly in harm's way because they are. Exactly. Even if it's a runaway, things can still happen. According to that same USA Today article, tens of thousands of foster children are listed as runaways. Between 2002 and 2022, a span of just 20 years, over 100,000 missing foster children in America had their cases closed without ever being found. That's 5,000 cases a year closed. Before they were ever found, yes. Are they doing this because some of them age out of the system and they just don't care anymore? Basically, once a foster child turns 18 or 21, their case can be closed whether they're found or not. But also, in some states, there are gaps in the legislation that make it possible to close a missing child case after only a handful of months. What? Yes. So some of these cases are getting closed after six months or so without ever finding the missing child. With no investigation, they just they just decide, oh, it's been six months. We're not going to do anything. Case closed. In some instances, yes. I don't even know what to say right now. This is a massive issue that until researching this case, I had no idea about. How do you close the cases of more than 100,000 missing children before you find them? Foster children deserve to be protected and this is such a gross injustice to them. This is insane. As reported in the Washington Post, these horrifying statistics can be chalked up to a lack of federal oversight, underfunded agencies, high staff and caseworker turnover, and most heartbreakingly, a general lack of care about these children. In that same Washington Post article I just mentioned, it's noted that, quote, a missing foster child is not necessarily on the streets. Some are safe with a foster family or relative, end quote, but the state has still lost track of where that child is at. This is due to the fact that when children move from one home to another, another, it is far too common for their files not to be updated, meaning that they essentially vanish into thin air and no one knows where to find them. The foster care system, I think a lot of people will agree, especially after hearing this, that it is very broken. And that is not entirely due to social workers because they're very overworked, as you mentioned, and it's not always the fault of the foster parents because I want to take a moment and point out that there are great foster families great social workers out there trying to do everything they can, and it's not their fault that the system's broken, but there are cracks in the system. I'm really glad you brought that up because there are so many good people out there fighting to protect foster children, and they deserve all of the praise in the world. But like you said, there are cracks that these children are slipping through, and we need to try and figure out how to close those cracks before anyone else goes missing. These are horrifying statistics, and I noticed that you have several sources you're pulling from here. So this isn't just one source. This is coming from several places. So this is a documented issue that no one's hearing about. And that's still really frustrating. Like I said earlier, not every foster child that goes missing is directly in harm's way. They could just be with a foster family or with a relative and just not have their case files updated. But I don't think that it matters that much because they should not be getting lost in the system in the first place. And if they were to encounter some form of harm, the foster system would not have any idea where to even look for them. Like you said, not every child is absolutely directly in harm's way when they go missing from the system. If something does go awry and something happens to them, no one can even look for them. 
No one knows where to look for them if they even do notice that they're gone. And then here we are with thousands of missing children and we have no idea where they are. And if you don't know where they are to begin with, how do you notice that they're missing? Exactly. As reported by NPR, as many as 60% of children rescued from sex trafficking operations in the United States have some experience in either foster care or group homes, according to the FBI. Knowing that foster children are some of the most common sex trafficking victims, I cannot understand why they are continuing to slip through the cracks without getting the attention that they deserve. Something needs to change here and it needs to happen sooner rather than later before more foster children go missing or fall into harm's way. Now that we have all of this information about the foster system in today's world and knowing that it was no better in the 1980s, I think it's a real possibility that our John Doe's could have gone missing from the foster care system and ended up in Boston in the drug trade to survive. This has been very hard to listen to. To hear these facts and these statistics and these horrible things that are happening, it was really hard to listen to. And knowing that these kids, our John Doe's, might have just been doing what they had to survive because the system failed them is really hard. And listeners, I know this was very hard to listen to recording, and I know this is going to be really hard to listen to as a listener, but Madden and I had a short discussion that this is a very important topic that neither one of us knew was happening prior to this episode. And it's really important to get it out there because this is a problem. And unless attention is drawn to it, nothing's gonna change and this is just gonna keep happening. So while this was really hard to listen to, we hope that you recognize this problem and you can join us to fight this issue and to get it out there so people are aware and this can stop happening. So that way we don't keep having children become does. It's really hard to move on from that, but do we have any missing foster children that match Clayton and Hooker's description? Not only do we not have any reports of missing foster children that match their descriptions, but we also don't have any missing children that match their descriptions. Whether or not the boys went missing from foster care, neither of them were reported missing, that much is clear. As far as matches go, there are none. So unfortunately, for the first time on this podcast, I have no potential matches to tell you about. I started my search for matches by sifting through NamUs and the Doe Network. I checked every person from New York that went missing before 1988, but I didn't find anything. I also searched the names Clayton and Hooker on NamUs, but no matches came up. Then I checked NamUs to see if any missing persons at all have been excluded from either Clayton or Hooker's case. Neither of them have had a single exclusion tested against them. At first, I was really worried that I had somehow missed something or just overlooked someone right in front of my eyes, but I don't think that this is the case because I'm not the only person researching this case coming up completely empty-handed. According to the Brooklyn paper, Detective Cronin, who has been working this case since 2014, quote, brought the case to local press outlets' attention after unsuccessfully combing through New York City and National Missing Persons databases to find clues to the victim's identities, end quote. So Detective Cronin, along with the Boston Police Department, have combed through databases of missing persons and they still haven't found any matches? That seems to be the case, yeah. Because I'm sure they have access to more than we do, but that's insane. So now you can see why I said that no matter where these boys came from originally, it's pretty clear that no one reported them missing. That's heartbreaking. They were so young. Yeah. How were they not missed by anyone? There is someone out there that knew them. And there is someone out there that realizes that they're gone, but didn't report them missing for some reason. No one is completely alone in this world. Someone knows that they're missing, right? Yeah. Like someone has to know. So one positive thing that I did hear you say is that 
Detective Cronin has been working on this case, it seems like. He went to local press. Has he been getting publicity? Has it been working? Are people knowing about this case more? Unfortunately, this case has gotten little to no publicity in the recent years. I can't speak for the publicity it got when it first happened back in 1988 because I didn't have access to any of those records, nor could I find anything from that time. But at least in recent years, there's been basically nothing about this case. It got some publicity back in 2015 when the facial reconstruction of Clayton was published, and then a few more articles about the case were released in 2018 when Cronin started reaching out to New York City newspapers to look for people who may have known the victims or known Flip. But other than that, this case has really fallen out of the public's line of sight. And Detective Cronin, who seemed to be one of the last people really fighting for these dose to be identified, actually retired from the Boston Police Force back in 2020. No. This means that it's more important than ever that we bring attention to this case. This isn't just an unidentified remains case, this was a double homicide. And whoever killed these two young boys is still out there, walking free. They will continue to get away with these murders until we know who Clayton and Hooker really were. Both John Doe's are buried in a Boston municipal burial ground, waiting to be identified and returned to their families. As far as what else can be done in this case, the most important step is tracking down people in New York who might have known Hooker, Clayton, or Flip, because they could hold the keys to identifying the John Doe's. We know that this is what Detective Cronin was trying to accomplish before he retired, and I think he had the right idea. Someone in New York knew these boys, we just need to get to them. Additionally, tracking down the group that assaulted Flip around the time of the murders could give information about the killer or killers of our John Doe's. We know that DNA testing of Clayton and Hooker has been somewhat of a dead end thus far, but I think investigators should try lifting touch DNA or trace evidence from the makeshift silencer found at the scene. I also think, if possible, they should try to do DNA testing again. Like we said, we don't know when the DNA testing was done before, but even if it was done three years ago, there's new advances and it never hurts to try again because this seems like one of those cases where you're going to have to do everything. Pull out all the tests to find out who these boys are. On a much larger scale, something needs to be done to fix the massive cracks that foster children are falling into every single day. The lack of care given to these foster children is absolutely heartbreaking. We owe it to these John Doe's and to the hundreds of thousands of foster children who have gone missing to care about their cases. If you or anyone you know has information relating to this case, Please, please reach out to law enforcement. You can reach the Boston Police Department at 617-343-4500 or the Massachusetts Office of Chief Medical Examiner at 617-267-6767. Or if you want to leave an anonymous tip, you can contact Crime Stoppers at 800-494-TIPS or you can text TIP to crime, and that number is 27463. All of this contact information and the sources we used will be linked on our website, theunnameddoe.com. And the picture we discussed in this episode will be available on our website and our Instagram, which are linked in the show notes. If you want to hear one extra full-length episode per month detailing the cases of missing persons discussed during our episodes and one mini John or Jane Doe case per month, be sure to head over to our Patreon where you can access these episodes and all the ones already published for just $5 a month. 
A portion of all Patreon earnings are going to be donated to causes that are helping bring justice and closure for unidentified remains cases, missing persons cases, and so much more. The first organization that we are hoping to donate to is the Forensic Anthropology Cold Case Team at Southeast Missouri State University. They are raising funds to afford DNA testing on one of the cases in their labs. We aren't asking you to donate any of your money to this cause, but please take time to share this fundraiser with your friends and family and help anthropologists at SEMO get one step closer to solving a cold case. As always, thank you so much for joining us for another episode and we will see you next Tuesday. This podcast was researched and written by Madden Delaney. All editing and music was done by Zoe Race.